Thank you, choir. Such a beautiful anthem. I was writing down the words. You're almost there where the journey ends, where death will die and life begin. The answered prayer, Emmanuel. As we go to prayer as a church family, I want to mention again the Schulenberg family. Uh, Gordon's service was yesterday at the Homestead. Many of you were there. It was a beautiful service. I ask you to continue in prayer for his wife, B, and their daughter, Jenny, in particular, and the siblings as they make decisions in the days ahead. Got word just yesterday morning that uh, Merrill Lundberg's wife, Donna, passed away after a long battle with illness. Um, she died at their home in Huntley. Uh, her service will be uh, later this week, December 9th, up in Upper Wisconsin, where they had um, community and home. Uh, so just be in prayer for Merrill and their extended family. Remember Art Gustafson, Betty Fernandez, and Laura Chavez, they all continue to recover from uh, illnesses or uh, injuries or surgery. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, the hymn we began with, Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel, tells us that you are the God who is with us. We also know, through your word, that you came into this world you made as a man of sorrows, acquainted, familiar with grief. So we ask you today by your Holy Spirit to minister those who have suffered loss and grief in recent days to the Schulenbergs, to the Lundberg family. You understand loss. We ask you to minister your comfort as well as your hope. You're also the healer of all things. You can bring healing to our bodies, healing to our and in our relationships. Most importantly, eternal healing to our souls. We ask you for healing in the lives and bodies of Art Gustafson and Betty Fernandez and Laura Chavez and others today who struggle with illness or sickness, those who struggle with conflict or pain in relationships or families, we ask you to bring healing again by your spirit. So Lord God, we thank you for what we celebrate. We thank you for coming into this world, for taking on flesh. We thank you for your grace and your presence, and we ask you to Continue to speak truth to us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story of Serve the World really begins decades ago with uh, Chapel Street's commitment to missions. There was a growing commitment to what Chapel Street could do around the world. How could we be more involved in what God was doing around the world? Somewhere in all that, the idea bubbled up uh, might have been somewhere between Dave LeVan, Bruce McAvoy, and me to take that phrase, serve the world, and create that as our mission's emphasis. We started with that concept, almost like a what if we could do this, and we wanted it to truly create a deeper connection for the congregation, not just the money, not just, hey, let's raise money, because God's got all the money anyway, but can we use this to connect people to kingdom work in just a more deep and meaningful way? But we had a problem and that was uh, while all this interest was growing and we wanted more and more people to get involved in missions, we struggled to um, fund all the things we wanted to fund because we had one church budget and there was a slice in that church budget for missions. And it was really hard to grow that like we wanted to grow it because to grow the little slice of missions in the church budget, you had to take away from other budgets like children's ministry or worship ministries. So we were, we were stuck. How do we 
get more people involved in missions? How do we grow our whole missions emphasis and how do we fund it in a stronger way than we ever have before? And it was Pastor Brian that said, what if we created a, a separate and distinct fund that people could give to that we could then re-gift and redistribute? And I thought, genius. And we were nervous about that because we were afraid that when you create a separate bucket, bucket other than your, than your church budget, your general fund, that people will just kind of rob Peter to pay Paul to take money out of here and then give it to there. But actually what happened was people gave more. And we realized that Serve the World Now accomplished both purposes of helping more people see it as something they were involved with and it created the dust of a bucket where people could give. Just watching the congregation engage with the different ministries in a deeper, more meaningful, more impactful way and deepen their heart and their love for a group of people struggling with AIDS in a remote part of northern Nigeria or in a youth camp in El Refugio in Ecuador. One of the gifts I remember very early was to invest in a skateboard park in Quito, Ecuador. This group of kids I don't feel like is, uh, is hearing uh, the, the life-saving message of, of Jesus Christ anywhere else. And the Lord has just has given us a wonderful opportunity. It's impressive what can do God. He put in my the Rock Skate Church, and my life When you meet people who are living and serving in different parts of the world, and you share kind of fellowship that is really powerful and unique. It kind of took what was my interest into and a desire that I had to, to work for a Christian nonprofit, and it really like fueled that fire. What Serve the World has done for me is given me God's heart for the world. And, and that would be a, a hope for Chapel Street, that we would all be on a journey to have more of an understanding of God's heart for the nations. Well, if you've been around Chapel Street very long, you know that during every Advent season, right about this time of the year, we take time to tell you the story of one of our Serve the World partners, and then we, we try to give generously to that partner. If you're newer to Chapel Street um, and haven't heard this language before, Serve the World is just how we talk about local and global missions. And we believe that we're all called by Jesus himself to serve the world in some way. Last year, our Advent partner was Hope School in Africa. And together we raised uh, over $600,000 for that ministry. And we've heard great things about it. It's in a very dangerous part of the world, so we can't say actually a lot about it. Uh, but we've heard great things even just this weekend about what's happening there. But what we don't get to show you every uh, Advent season is what God is doing through all our other Serve the World partners, as many as 20 or more every year. Uh, from Wayside Cross Ministries in Aurora, to Life Water in Africa, to Caring Network, to Naomi's House, and there are many, many others you can find on our website. And so this year we're trying to share just the greater story and vision of Serve the World, what God has done and is doing here locally as well as all around the world. So our goal this year is to raise $300,000 or more for Serve the World, but in general, not to any one partner, so that we can be prepared for and respond to the opportunities that God brings our way in 2024. 
So you can join and share in this vision by uh, going to our Chapel Street website and finding the Serve the World Give button, or you can use our app, or you just write Serve the World on the memo line of your check, drop it in the box in the back anytime during this month, and that all those funds will go to Serve the World. So we just want to thank you in advance for your generosity. Well, one of the very first classes I took as a freshman in college uh, was a class called Humanities. And it was a con- kind of a combination of history, religion, literature, and philosophy, all in one class. It lasted two years. But the first portion of that class um, w- required me to read uh, the medieval classic Beowulf. Now, let me ask you, uh, how many of you had to read Beowulf in high school or college? At least a few of you. How many um, of you who read it actually read the Cliff Notes version, which is probably what I did? How many of you have never even heard of Beowulf? It's okay, you haven't really missed a lot there, but um, had to read it. Now, Beowulf was written in the 7th or 8th century, over a thousand years ago, and it's the epic story, a poem really, of an ancient hero who rescues kingdoms and slays dragons. And our first assignment, freshman year, first semester, was to write a four-page paper on heroism in ancient literature. Now, I'd been told by an upperclassman friend at the time that the professor of this course, who happened to be an 80-year-old, almost retired professor, end of a long and distinguished academic career, that all he really cared about at this phase of his career was spelling. My friend said, just don't misspell any words and you'll do fine. I thought, great. So I wrote my first college paper, what I thought was a pretty awesome paper, masterpiece really, on ancient heroism. And when I got it back, the grade on top was a, a D minus. Red marks all over the four pages. Turns out that in four pages, I had misspelled the word hero 13 times. <laughs> H-E-R-O-E. Like a sandwich. I know. You know, sometimes when you're right, some words just look right. And evidently, that one looked right to me. Um, Even though I got all the other words right, that one word made all the difference and ruined my grade. Now, today we begin our Advent series by talking not about a word, a word, but about the word. Our series is called Light and Life. We're going to be in one passage in John's Gospel. This is a familiar passage. You'll recognize it. And then each week we'll read the entire passage and then go back to just a portion of it, uh, of that text. And before we start... I want to point out to you that John, of all the gospel writers, uh, actually is very clear. He tells us exactly what his purpose for writing is. At the end of his gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 31, we read, But these are written, these stories I've told you, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's his purpose. And that's our purpose, really, to draw people to eternal, life-giving faith in Jesus. Now, here's how John begins his story of Jesus. And as I read, I want you to listen for four words. Listen for word, light, life, and glory. Those are the themes we'll be taking on over these four weeks. Let me read John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not 
overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Word, light, life, glory. Apostle John begins his gospel by pointing to not a word, but to the word. Now we need to be clear right at the start uh, about what or who John means by the word. We saw it in verse 14, the last verse that I read. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the Christmas story. That's Bethlehem. That's the baby in the manger. John writes to tell the story of Jesus, what he did, and what his death and resurrection mean, what he taught, but he begins by telling us who Jesus is. Now, as we study uh, this passage, uh, there are a couple things we should notice. Of all the New Testament writers, the Apostle John writes in perhaps the simplest language and the simplest sentences. You'll notice as we read, uh, a third grader can understand basically what John is writing, the words. It's also why we often encourage brand new believers to read the Gospel of John first before they take on any other part of the New Testament or the Old Testament. And it's why people new to the Bible should begin with the Gospel of John. It's easy to understand. But don't be fooled. John is also brilliant in his writing. And he writes about some of the deepest and most challenging theological subjects in the entire Bible. So you're going to see that John speaks to our hearts, but he also speaks to our minds. So just warning you ahead of time, buckle up. You're going to have to think some. You're going to have to think some this morning. We're going to focus on just the first three verses today. Let me read them again for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now I want to read it one more time, this time substituting the name Jesus every time the word Word appears. That's how John wants us to read it. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, John is telling us three things about Jesus. He is the eternal word, he is the divine word, and he is the creative word. First, the eternal word. When I was in Seminary, years ago, I had to do a semester of what was called clinical pastoral education. I've told this story before, you might remember it. CPE for short. It meant serving as a student chaplain in a large Chicago area hospital. But to get a position, I had to actually apply an interview to get a position as a student, chapel, a student chaplain in a hospital. I had to interview with the, whatever hospital it was, the, the director of spiritual care there. And one of the hospitals that I applied to was a large Catholic 
suburban hospital. And that didn't matter much to me because a hospital is a hospital. I just needed a place to uh, do this requirement. So I went in for my formal interview. And when I walked into the head chaplain's office, I was sort of surprised that it was a, a priest. Dark suit, white collar. I don't know why I was surprised. It was a Catholic hospital, but I was still surprised. I wasn't really expecting that. So I walked into his office and I sat down in a chair. He was sitting behind his desk. And he didn't even look up when I walked in. Didn't greet me, nothing. He just kept, he was looking at a folder. So I walked in, sat down, and kind of an awkward, I don't know, 30 seconds go by. And he just left me hanging. I'm just sitting there, waiting. He's looking down, I assume looking at my application. And then he looked up at me, took off his glasses, and said, Brian Coffey, who the heck are you? Only he didn't say heck. He used another word that surprised me as well. Now, I don't know what he was doing. I, I didn't know whether he started all his interviews like that, whether he was sort of singling me out because he knew I wasn't Catholic, or whether he just was testing me to see how I would identify myself. So I mumbled out something like, well, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, just trying to figure out his call in my life. Whatever I said, he nodded kind of thoughtfully and then smiled a really small, thin smile as if he'd like my answer and our interview went fine, although I ended up taking an assignment in a different hospital. Now, John's focus here is identity, just like that priest's focus was identity. The identity of Jesus. He's asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? Now, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all want to tell us who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, and why it matters, but they all start in different places. Mark begins with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus when Jesus was about 30 years old. Matthew begins before Jesus was born with a genealogy that reaches all the way back to Abraham. And then he tells the story of Mary and Joseph. Luke begins by citing his historical research and then the prophecies about John the Baptist and then the famous birth story of Jesus. But John doesn't start where any of the others do. He goes back even further he doesn't start his story in Bethlehem. He doesn't start it with a genealogy. He doesn't start it with an ancient prophecy. John begins the story before time itself. His first words are, in the beginning. Now those words should sound somewhat familiar. John is reaching back to the first three words of the Bible, which are, in the beginning. He starts with the great mystery of the beginning of all things. Before there was earth and sky and sea, before there were people and animals and forests, before there were nations and peoples and wars and politics, before there was time itself, there was a beginning. And then he fills in the next word, which his Jewish readers would have known by heart. In the beginning, what? God only here John drops a surprise. He doesn't say, as all of his readers would have expected him to say, in the beginning, God. Rather, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, John here is teaching us two things about the identity of Jesus. First, Jesus is eternal. Before there was anything else, before the universe came into being, before there was time, Jesus was. Jesus actually affirmed his own eternal nature in John chapter 8. He says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. In John 17, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, John was from a Jewish background. 
Uh, he, but he was writing in Greek to both people of Jewish culture and people of Greek culture. And when he refers to Jesus as the word, the Greek word he uses, as many of you know, was the word logos. <coughs> and he's got both <coughs> cultures in mind in using that word. In the ancient Greek way of thinking, everything that exists also pre-existed. For example, that's where I need, you need to think a little bit. This pulpit is real. It exists. Okay? You can touch it. You can feel it. But in the Greek way of thinking, this pulpit also pre-existed because someone had the thought of this pulpit before it materialized, before it was actually built. That's what they mean by logos. So when John says Jesus is the logos, the word he's saying to Greek readers that Jesus pre-existed before anything else existed. To Jewish readers, he's simply saying that just as God, Yahweh, the Holy One is eternal, so Jesus the Messiah is eternal. Secondly, John is teaching us that Jesus is also the reason for all things. He's eternal, and he's the reason for all things. As I mentioned, the Greek word John uses here is logos, in which we get our words logic or logical. In the ancient Greek language, the word logos could mean word or speech or thought or principle. And in ancient Greek philosophy, it came to mean divine reason. So logos was the reason, the organizing principle of all things, that which gives meaning to all things. For example, if I bought a brand new car and then put that car in my backyard and used the trunk as the planter for shrubbery, you would say, well, you don't understand the logos of a car. You don't understand the purpose and meaning of a car. I was thinking this week that the Chicago Bears don't seem to understand the logos of football, <laughs> which is the organizing principle, which is scoring touchdowns. Okay. <laughs> Pastor Jeff would be proud of me for saying that. Uh, for the ancient Greek world, logos was how one discovered the meaning of life. For example, in the 4th century BC, a little ancient philosophy here, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, most of you have heard of him, said it was the logos that made possible for human beings to perceive the difference between what is just and what is unjust between what is good and what is evil. And then just 25 years before Jesus' birth, the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria wrote, Logos is a bridge between a transcendent deity and the material universe. But the problem was the ancient Greeks couldn't agree on exactly what the Logos was. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but basically there were two great schools of thought in the ancient world. The Epicureans that is, followers of a guy named Epicurus. By the way, is it just me, or do all these ancient guys look about the same? I'm not, I'm. But Epicurus believed that the logos of life was pleasure and enjoyment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And we still see Epicureans in our world today. You know, people who say, live your best life now. It's the same thing, only thousands of years later. On the other hand, the Stoics who were followers of yet another Greek philosopher, Zeno of Sidium. See, looks the same. Right? He believed logos was moral discipline, doing what is right and just. And we also see versions of this today. That is, be a good person. Be the best version of yourself. In fact, the raging conflict in our culture today is over what is moral to begin with, right? 
So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's saying the reason and purpose and meaning of everything that is, is Jesus. And to Jewish background people, Logos or the words just pointed to the truth of God. To the Word of God that was spoken through Moses and the prophets. And Jewish readers would have immediately seen the connection between in the beginning was the Word and in the beginning God created. Because how did God create? He spoke. He spoke words. Genesis 1-3 says, And God said, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So for the Jewish person, the word pointed to the power and authority of God to create, to shape, to speak all things into existence. God spoke, and it was. So, John is saying that Jesus is the pre-existent Word, the reason for all things, the very truth of God. So Jesus is the eternal Word. Secondly, John is saying that Jesus is also the divine Word. The divine Word. If I asked you today, who was Abraham Lincoln? Most of you would say, without even having to think much, well, he was the 16th president of the United States. And then what if I said, well, he actually wasn't president. He just did a bunch of presidential things. You would immediately say, no, 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 no. He was, in fact, president. There are all kinds of historical documents and testimony that tell us that. Plus, if he was not president, those speeches and documents would have had no authority at all. And that's why what, Jesus, what John is saying here about Jesus matters. Because there were people then toward the end of the first century, and people still now who say, well, he did and said, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of godly-sounding things, but he really wasn't God. Back to verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, he was eternal, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I saw a recent survey that showed some 76% of Americans today believe that Jesus was a real historical person that lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. But the same study showed that far fewer people believe that Jesus was, in fact, God. According to Barna Research, only 56% of Americans believe Jesus was God. And among younger people, that number drops below 50% to 48%. In other words, many see Jesus as just another figure on the Mount Rushmore of great spiritual teachers in the history of the world. You know, Muhammad, Muhammad the Buddha, Jesus, you know, Oprah, you know, like that. <laughs> now, this is the historic heresy called Arianism. Another ancient guy, Arian, was a third century theologian. He looks different than the other guys. He's got a, a fancy hat. Uh, he, was, he was a heretical theologian who taught that although Jesus was the Son of God, he was <coughs> excuse me, created by God, and therefore as a created being, he was not eternal. Examples of Arianism today would be groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that Jesus was created as, by God as the archangel Michael and is therefore lesser than God. You have to read into their theology to see that. Or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who believe Jesus was a spirit child of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother and was a man who became God, not God who became man. Significant difference. 
Or your friend or coworker who says, you know, I can believe Jesus was a great teacher, but to say he was God, eh, that's a bit too far. But John is exceedingly clear here. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus himself was very clear as well. In John chapter 14, we read Jesus' answer. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And again, in John 10, I and the Father are one. And this claim to be one with God, to be God, is the very reason Jesus was arrested and eventually put to death. In John 10, we read, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. We also know the witness of other New Testament writers. The writer of Hebrews writes, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So why does it matter? Why spend all this time trying to demonstrate that Jesus was and is God? What difference does it make? Well, it means that when Jesus taught, he taught with the authority of God. It means that when Jesus died... He died as the sinless Lamb of God, worthy to take away the sins of the world. No one else would have that authority. It means that when he rose again, it was by the power of God to overcome and defeat death itself, by which we have the hope of eternal life. And it means that when he comes again, <coughs> it will be with the power and glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords to bring both perfect judgment and salvation to the world. It means the whole redemptive of the st uh, story of the Bible which means your salvation, my salvation, our certain hope of eternal life, all of it depends and hinges on this central truth. There is no gospel without Jesus as the divine word. That's why it matters. Jesus is the divine word. And thirdly, John tells us here, Jesus is also the creative word. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so what's John saying here? Now you might be thinking, if you're still with me, well, I thought Genesis 1 once says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what gives? Well, that's true. Remember how God created, and God said let there be light. He spoke and it was. John is saying that Jesus is the word, the speech, the authority of God. And then the way our minds struggle to understand, that means Jesus is the maker of all things. Now, here I know we're entering into the great mystery of the God of the Bible. That is one God who reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, you read it carefully, you see that we see God creates, but that he creates through his word, he speaks through the Son, 
and that the Spirit of God simultaneously is hovering over the surface of the waters. Read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and you'll see that. We might think of it this way. Not a perfect illustration, but we might think of it this way. God the Father is the architect, the designer of all things. God the Son, Jesus the Word, is the builder of all things. And God the Holy Spirit is the supervisor of the entire project. Again, why does this matter? Because it means that Jesus was not created. He's the creator. And that's the only way he can be both divine and eternal. In a passage we studied earlier this year from Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in his opening three verses, it's really not very very many words in Greek. Three verses, John is saying Jesus is before all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the redeemer of all things of all things. Jesus is the reason for all things and holds all things together. Jesus is the source of life. Life now and life forever. Like most of you, I would guess, uh, we decorated our home for Christmas, finished decorating, uh, last week after Thanksgiving. Part of our decorations are several little... um, Crash sets. You know, crash is the manger scene. Uh, we've collected these over the years from all around the world. We have little scenes from uh, Africa, from the Middle East, from South America, from Southeast Asia. And all of these little sets, and we have them set up in a certain area of our family room, uh, have Mary and Joseph, of course, and they have a manger. Uh, some have wise men, some have shepherds, some have both. And they all have a little tiny figure of Jesus in the manger. This one comes from Israel. I think it's carved out of olive wood. But there he is. He was sitting up here the whole time. You probably didn't notice him. And we see these little sets, and we're tempted to think, oh, there he is. It's the manger scene. How cute. How vulnerable. How small. How cuddly. Might even think of our own children's births or the births of our grandchildren. And all of that's true, of course, but I want you to hear again what John is saying. He's saying the Word became flesh. The eternal Word, the divine Word, the creative Word, the one who is before all things, the one who is the reason for all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who is the source of life, the source of your life now, the source of your life for all eternity, this word became flesh. All I want you to see today is that he's much, much bigger than we think. We're going to close our service today with communion with the bread and cup that we celebrate month by month. And communion really is an invitation for us to remember. 
To remember that the Word became flesh, and the child in the manger became the man on the cross. And what he accomplished there was our forgiveness, your forgiveness, your hope. And that's what we remember when we hold bread and cup in our hands. This, this table doesn't belong to our church. So even if this is your first time here today at, at South Street, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we want you to take the bread and cup with us and celebrate that today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, how we thank you for your word today. And today, in saying that word, it doesn't mean just the printed word on the page. It means that and it means more. Your word, the Holy One that is before all things, who made all things and holds all things together, who entered into our world as flesh to ultimately give himself for us and our salvation. Lord, as we hold bread and cup in our hands again, by your Spirit, remind us in a personal way that Emmanuel came for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture teaches us that on the night before he died, the Lord Jesus met with his closest followers at a meal, Passover meal, and partway through that meal, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. After the bread... The Lord also poured a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this remembrance of him. And now hear the benediction from 1 Peter. Go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls.